0: Welcome back to Talking PFAS. And if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. We're now on iTunes, by the way, so please feel free to leave a review at the end. I'm your host, Kayleen Bell. Every episode of Talking PFAS, I'll be bringing you a candid conversation I've had with a wide range of people and experts, including people who live or work in contaminated zones, politicians who work with these communities to try to get solutions, firefighters who have worked with these chemicals for decades fishing communities who have had to face closures because of pollution to their fishing environment, remediation experts, researchers who are trying to come up with solutions, scientists, medical professionals, toxicologists, hydrologists, the list goes on. There is a lot to talk about when it comes to this issue and that's why I wanted to start the podcast. I'll also be digging deep to answer the questions flying under the radar. And please feel free to send me your questions at talkingpfas at gmail.com. Today I'm talking with Dr Brett Turner from the School of Engineering's Centre for Geotechnical Science and Engineering at Newcastle University. Dr Turner's research has shown that plant proteins, in particular the proteins from hemp plants, are an effective natural method for PFAS remediation. In 2017, Dr Turner received the University of Newcastle Chancellor's Award for Innovation. With at least 90 sites in Australia being investigated for PFAS contamination, plus many other countries investigating hundreds, possibly thousands of sites contaminated by PFAS chemicals, safe and successful remediation options are paramount. As discussed previously in Talking PFAS, Remediating groundwater and soil are regarded as much more difficult than removing PFAS from surface waters. Dr Brett Turner and his team at Newcastle University have developed a natural method for removing PFAS from groundwater using hemp plants, which might also have the added benefit of being able to remove PFAS from soil in the future.
1: That's correct, Kayleen, yes. We've been looking probably for the last two years or so now at uh, different methods of removing the PFAS from contaminated groundwater. We're here at Newcastle University, very close proximity to Williamtown, which has had a lot of media attention internationally as well as domestically. In the last two years, we've had a nice little grant from the New South Wales Chief Scientist Department. We've been looking at alternate ways of removing the PFAS from the groundwater and there are other people that apply nature to the automotive industry or other things like that remediation is no different where we can take things that happen normally in nature and just apply it to a specific problem that we're facing we just have to drill down see what's going on and how it works we can then apply that in the engineering sense
0: Could we just start with your background?
1: So, yeah, background biochemistry and chemistry. Growing up, I always loved how the body interacted with different things, uh, how things worked in the human body. Ideally, I'm probably a repressed doctor. I always really wanted to get into medicine, but uh, never got around to it, I guess.
0: Brett, when did you first hear about PFAS? I know it was announced in the Newcastle region in 2015, Mm -hmm. but... When did you first become aware as a researcher of PFAS?
1: In the media at the same time around 2015, it probably wasn't until late 2015, early 2016 that we were contacted by the Chief Scientist's Office and they were looking, uh, putting a whole host of different research areas out there for academics to put a paper in on their specialty. So Laurie professor scott sloan here who's kind of working with me on this he knew the chief scientist fairly well as well and she kind of come to us and said well can we write a paper on the engineering options for cleaning up pfas and at about the same time i was asked to join what's called the uh, williamtown working water group which is like a a technical working group that analyzes all the defense data and stuff from their reports and re- and then we report back to the New South Wales Expert Panel on PFAS.
0: Is that public? Yeah. So could if anyone's listening and wants to check that out, where do they go for that?
1: A Google search for New South Wales Chief Scientist or PFAS Expert Panel. And there's a whole host of documents on there that they put up in relation to what defences put out for their reports and things like that. So there's a group of probably, well, it varies from time to time, maybe around probably eight in the core group and out to 12 to 14 people, I guess, from all different universities and government departments.
0: So what are the disciplines that are present in that meeting? The
1: head of our group is Professor William Glamour from University of New South Wales, and he is a hydrologist. He's done a lot of work in the Williamtown area for his PhD, actually, on the flood mitigation schemes and things like that. So he's the head of our group, and then we have... People from Department of Primary Industries, Hunter Water is on there as well, a couple of consultants from different firms, um, they're hydrologists, hydrogeologists.
0: Are they hired by Defence?
1: Actually, our contract is with the EPA. The EPA has put this group together and we've got representatives from the EPA on there as well. Basically, we'll set up to analyse the documents for the Williamtown, or what Defence is doing at Williamtown, and we, we meet when we are required with Defence, their main contractors, consultants and the EPA and our group and we go through the latest documents they've put together, all their sampling results and things like that.
0: Are you leading and steering the direction of remediation efforts or are you just generally advising?
1: Uh, we can't force them to do anything but Defence is good in that they trying to be very proactive and trying to do something to stop the flow off the base.
0: I know the community members listening right now may not believe that. What have you seen then to give you that opinion?
1: There is a lot of activity out there. You may not be able to see it from the road or whatever, but there is a lot of activity going on. There have been trials for different things, whether it's just trying to treat the water. There's been a couple of big efforts out there at the moment. One is focusing on Lake Cochrane, which is the contaminated lake on the base they've been around the world looking what other people are doing and trying to implement them the problem with PFAS is that it's not like any other traditional contaminants the basic problem is the the chemistry of it itself so we look at the the three main contaminants that are legislated against so there's PFOA PFOS and PFHXS so they're the three that have legislation around them in terms of the drinking water limits
0: Where's that legislation sitting in Australia or
1: overseas? Uh, well, I d- well, is it legislated? I'm not quite sure, but it's in our Australian drinking water guidelines. And that's what everyone now has to shoot for are those particular levels before any kind of discharge or, or whatever. So we've got to be treated to a certain standard which is now in line with the US EPA.
0: The Australian drinking water guidelines are the primary guidance document on drinking water quality in Australia... It's important to note they are not mandatory standards. They simply provide a basis for determining the desirable quality of water to be supplied to consumers in all parts of Australia.
1: So it's 0.07 micrograms per litre for PFOS and PFHXS combined and it's, I think it's 0.56 micrograms per litre for PFOA. That's the drinking water limit and it's 10 times those for uh, recreational activity.
0: You became aware of it basically when the public did in 2015. Yeah. So, in the scientific research community, even though these chemicals have been around since the 40s
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, in Australia or around the world, and we're dealing now with all the PFAS that's ever been made, mm-hmm. Co- correct? Yes. I heard a specialist say that at the HEPA conference. Yep. I'm surprised that there hasn't been more discussion in the research community, about looking into these chemicals before now?
1: Well, Australia was probably a little bit behind in terms of finding out about this. You look at some of the publications from overseas, they probably started mainly in the early 2000s, coming out of the US and whatnot.
0: The National Industrial Chemicals Notification and Assessment Scheme in Australia known as NICNAS helps protect people and the environment by assessing the risks of industrial chemicals and providing information to promote their safe use. NICNAS gave evidence at the parliamentary inquiry into PFAS on the 14th of September 2018 that from 2000 onwards NICNAS became aware of some major concerns about perfluorinated chemicals. The advice was provided to NICNAS from the head of the United States EPA in 2000. It wasn't until the 30th of April 2003 when NICNAS released an alert recommending that PFOS, PFOA firefighting products such as AFFF foam be restricted to essential use only and that AFFF should not be used for fire training purposes. Well,
1: Australia being Quite a bit removed from the rest of the world. Uh, geographically, I think things take a little bit longer to, to filter down to here. I did go to the Cleanup Conference in Melbourne in September, which was basically an international conference on PFAS remediation. And that was set up by CRC Care here at the University of Newcastle.
0: Dr. Turner is referring to the Cleanup 2017 conference, which was held in Australia in Melbourne it incorporated the first international PFAS conference. Professor Ravi Nadu, the chair of the Clean Up 2017 conference organising committee, said in his welcome to the event, there is an increasingly urgent need to establish guidance, legislation and technologies to deal with PFAS contamination.
1: There were quite a few international researchers there. Dr Jennifer Field From Colorado, she's probably one of the world leaders in terms of finding out the unknown PFAS. We all know the three main big ones, but I don't know if a lot of people know there's been more than 3,000 different forms of PFAS identified. And Dr Jennifer Field and her team are probably at the forefront in terms of research to try and determine or quantify how much of the unknown is out there and how we can analyse for it.
0: 3,000 is a lot. These are all PFAS type chemicals.
1: Yeah, they're all PFAS type chemicals, so they've got a a fluorine atom in them somewhere.
0: What makes a PFAS chemical for people that have no chemistry or scientific background?
1: A PFAS chemical is, if, if you think of something like sugar, so it's Pretty much glucose, C6, H12O6. So you've got six carbon atoms and some oxygen and some hydrogens. So with PFAS chemicals, you've got the carbon, what they call a backbone, and then you've got on all of the carbons, you've got all these fluorines hanging off them. Fluorine atoms. The carbon fluorine bond is one of the strongest in nature. It's very robust, very difficult, a lot of energy to destroy it.
0: This is why they are known as a persistent chemical in the environment.
1: Yeah, exactly. And depending on how long that carbon chain is, it gives them other chemical attributes as well. So whether or not they like to dissolve in water or they like to dissolve in fat, so being hydrophobic or hydrophilic.
0: Right. And as far as I understand, other toxins might accumulate in the human body. They might accumulate in fat tissue, but PFAS will accumulate... Somewhere else. Where does it like to go in the human body?
1: Well, it really likes to stick to the blood, but uh, when deposited, it hangs around the liver
0: and other organs.
1: Yeah, other organs, but it's mainly found in the liver and in in the blood.
0: Is there anything anyone can do in their diet to try to get rid of PFAS?
1: Uh, Well, that's something that we are looking at with our research as well. The whole impetus, really, of my work was there's all these people that are living in these contaminated areas and particular little kids that are very high PFAS is in their blood already and as most of the listeners would probably know these things have a long half-life in the blood so I think PFOA lasts for about three years PFOS is about five years and then PFHXS is around seven years. The half-life is the time it takes for half the concentration to disappear from your body it spends a lot of time in the blood and over the course of your life you're exposed to these chemicals in everyday items in your carpets on today's like a fairly rainy day so people have their waterproof jackets on and things like that
0: which you are actually wearing right now yeah
1: yeah <laughs> well this one's quite old so I don't know how much people should be left in it
0: does that concern you
1: um no not really Yes, you get exposures. At the end of the day, you you can't run from everything in life. And yes, if you're living in an area where it was known to be there and you're growing food in it for many years before you realised it, then I would be more concerned about wearing clothing and things like that or sitting on a new lounge or one that's had uh, some kind of stain or water-repellent treatment things like that, or microwave popcorn, or your food wrappers at um, fast food places.
0: It's in all of that?
1: It used to be. I'm not sure if they've changed that now. But yeah, all these everyday things has got these PFAS chemicals in it. Well, I don't think there's anything on the label per se. If it's uh, water-resistant, water-repellent, waterproof, unless it's like the animal-based fats like lenolin or something like that, then you can be pretty sure it's some kind of PFAS chemical. And even recently, we had to buy a new fry pan for our cooktop. So we went to look for a new one, and I think we got some kind of stoneware one. But what I I did see was a lot of labels, PFAR free. PFAR free, this is PFAR free, blah, blah, blah. Well, that may be well and good, but it's still non-stick. They may not have PFAR in it, but what have they replaced it with? Labelling is always an issue, and the fact that it says PFOS free doesn't really mean anything to me.
0: Uh, okay, so for the listeners that are stuck in contamination zones, there's many of them all around Australia, and more are becoming revealed. There's Catherine and Oakey and Williamtown. I, I can't list them all, but for the residents that are listening that are stuck and they can't sell their homes at the moment, and they haven't got the means to go and rent and pay a mortgage. And they're stuck there. What can they do to limit further exposure to the chemical since they already have a high amount?
1: Well, for a start, my, my heart really goes out to them and and that's really why we're, we're working really hard to try and get a solution to this. But in terms of trying to mitigate the current exposures, I guess the only thing they can do is really follow the what the Department of Health has already put out there, don't eat their the eggs that are grown at home don't feed your chickens the water from the from the ground or even one that pool up on the surface i think most of them are being connected to town water now so but uh, i guess it's very hard to in everyday life to steer away from these things so
0: let's go back to your impetus for this and uh, we'll talk about your research and maybe then take me down to the lab. So you've heard it on the news and then what happened?
1: After work one night I was sitting on the lounge watching the news and there was another report about how the health department was doing blood tests for the people living in the red zone at Williamtown and it got me thinking well why are they doing this? So I did a, some more literature digging around in the scientific published literature and found that in the medical literature in particular, the PFASs have a a really high affinity for blood. Long half-life, as I said before. And I thought, well, what is it that creates this really high affinity in the blood?
0: And by affinity, you mean attraction?
1: Yeah, there is something in the blood that PFAS loves to to stick to and be transported around with. So I thought, well, there's got to be something really good there that maybe we could use that As a remediation option, if we can find something similar. So, digging around in the medical literature finds that it's the actual part of the blood is what's called an albumin. And in humans, it's human serum albumin. In cows, it's bovine serum albumin. It's a big glob of a protein, which is a, a lot of different amino acids, very important for making your cells in your body. These particular albumins have a certain shape and the shape of these things allow different drugs and things in your blood to be transported so if you take say a nurofen tablet which is ibuprofen now ibuprofen has a very similar structure as pfoa ibuprofen binds and there's been a lot of research uh, on that binds to a certain part of the albumin and gets carried along and deposited where it needs to be so i thought well that's pretty neat albumins so I looked around saw what is high in protein what kind of foodstuffs there are a lot of foodstuffs around that are high in proteins but then again albumins are a little bit different proteins turns out that hemp is very high in albumin and also another protein called ediston, which there is not a lot about in the in the medical literature from that, what I thought was, well, okay, where can we get some of this? And it turns out that recently uh, health food stores have been selling this hemp protein powder.
0: Lots of products with hemp in them. Yeah, but
1: only recently has it been actually made legal that you can use it as a foodstuff. So I went to my local health food shop. I bought a 500-gram bag of from Hemp Foods Australia.
0: What was that? Seeds? Hemp seeds? Uh, it's Pro- called hemp
1: protein powder. And then I went out to Williamtown and I took a couple of containers out there and I took a sample out of the drain from across from the main gate. Went back to the lab and actually I tried a diff- few different protein powders that we bought and also just some other organic based material, some peat moss I bought from Bunnings. That people just mix in with their garden to to create some organic matter. So we tried all these different things. We spiked the groundwater with some PFAL which I bought from a scientific company because I didn't know how much of the PFAS is going to be in the sample I took because it costs quite a bit to have these analysed. I thought well we better make sure so I just spiked a little bit of PFAR into each one, sent them away to Sydney for analysis and when the results came back yeah it was absolutely amazing. It was, of the initial concentrations, we removed over 98% of the PFOS that was there and I think it was 97% of the PFOA.
0: They are amazing results. Now, now that only happened with the hemp protein or did it happen with any of the other items that you tested?
1: A couple of the others had high removal as well, but not as high. When they test for these things, there's 20 odd different as they test for. You're looking at the three main ones yes there are other proteins that performed almost as good but on an equivalent protein basis not so good because if you look at soy we use what's called the protein isolate which is like a concentrated protein which is like 90 odd percent. It was almost probably triple the amount of protein what's in hemp and it didn't quite remove as much as the hemp.
0: So let's go back to your story so you you got your results and then What was your reaction and your team when you saw those results? (laughs) Uh,
1: I was actually in Sydney with my son at athletics at the time when the results came through. I didn't have my lab book on me, but I kind of could remember which was what, and I looked, I thought, that can't be right, that can't be right. After the athletics carnival, I come straight back here to the university, and I come into my office, and I got my lab book, and I had a look, at it, and I thought, oh, that is Fantastic. Quite unbelievable and I knocked on the door of Professor Scott Sloan and I told him how well it went. Absolutely astounding.
0: And and I imagine there might be people listening and thinking, well, maybe that's an anomaly. Was it a once-off? Did you replicate these results?
1: Yeah, it's been replicated. With the research money we had from Mary O'Kane's office, we've done quite a few more tests under different conditions, different mix ratios, things like that. It, it wasn't an anomaly.
0: In your retesting, you're seeing those consistent numbers?
1: Yeah, 98% plus and sometimes to below the limit of reporting, which is the very limit that the lab can get to.
0: And you did get a grant from the...
1: New South Wales Department of Primary Industry through the Office of the Chief Scientist and Engineer.
0: Who organised the grant for you?
1: Mary O'Kane, who was the Chief Scientist at the time, she's now retired, she was also on the expert panel for marijuana use and she was very interested when she heard that we were doing stuff with hemp so she's been very supportive of our our research and director of our research group here um, Laurie professor scott sloan goes to a lot of political meetings and things like that so he knew mary quite well and scott used to relay what we were doing to her and keeping her in the loop and when we presented our initial results to her and showed her what we're doing and what our plan was. In particular, potentially growing the plants in these drains that are contaminated to remediate the soil. she became very supportive and she actively sourced some funding for us.
0: Professor O'Kane said, While the potential environmental benefits of this research are significant, so is the prospect for a major commercial breakthrough with global application. Professor Scott Sloan said, This is a tremendous example of local researchers working to find a solution to a local problem, but the application could be much broader indeed. Are you the only team that has looked into this that you know of?
1: Yes. What most people are looking at now, the current preferred technology, is what's called granular activated carbon. People call it GAC. That can work really well as well, but from what I've read, the time it takes to remove the PFAS is quite long.
0: And the cost?
1: The cost is pretty high too, and everyone is very cagey about how much these things cost. But looking at the company I buy most of my chemicals from, the cost of the activated carbon is around, on a commercial basis, about three times higher than the equivalent mass of the hemp.
0: The other thing with the granulated activated carbon that I understand is that it it needs to be incinerated between 1,000 to 1,200 degrees Celsius, correct?
1: Yeah, that's correct. And Um, we
0: don't have a facility in Australia uh, that can do that? We do. We do?
1: There are companies and furnaces capable of those temperatures, sure. I did a lot of work with the aluminium smelter industry prior to this, and there are companies that were treating their waste and that was upwards of a thousand degrees as well. I know there was one in South Australia that's called something like a plasma arc furnace which gets very very hot. Why does
0: it have to be incinerated for the listener?
1: So it's got a very high surface area so there's a lot of space in the activated carbon for the PFAS to stick to. So it's got to be treated. You can't really landfill this stuff because PFAS is don't degrade over time.
0: What happens if they go into landfill?
1: I mean, time's the big killer. So these chemicals will outlast any human currently around now. If you bury something in what's called a secure cell, they may design these things for maybe a 1,000 years. Well, 1,000 years is nothing really. Eventually, these things will break down and the contaminants will escape again.
0: And that's that's called leaching.
1: Yeah, so it'll eventually leach out.
0: So with yours then, with the hemp seed powder... It's absorbing the PFAS as well, and then it's contaminated?
1: Yes, that's right. The PFAS water is exposed to the hemp. The PFAS chemicals are absorbed onto the hemp. And then what we do currently, we centrifuge it to separate it. We are working on a system, which you may see a bit later, where we can remove it on a special drum. and So the clean water goes out, and then we can just uh, incinerate hemp with the hemp we've been doing some experiments here in our lab we have a, a couple of special pieces of equipment where we can thermally destroy something and analyze the gases that are coming off because part of the problem is when you're destroying these PFAS is what's in the gas stream
0: that's going into the atmosphere
1: exactly the danger is creation of chlorofluorocarbon. So remember many years ago there was a big ban on the propellants in aerosols.
0: Are they called PFCs?
1: Yeah these are things that were destroying the ozone layer. Some of these are many many thousands of times worse greenhouse gases than carbon dioxide. There are ways around it they add calcium to the waste stream to eventually form calcium fluoride so there's no fluorine gases. But at this stage we can't see anything coming off in the instruments and our temperatures seem to be a lot lower. I'm not at liberty to say what kind of temperatures at the moment but it is a lot less than what's required for activated carbon.
0: So just a lot more accessible for people that are in the business of remediation?
1: Yeah that's, that's definitely true.
0: And, and therefore if it's closer to where you're actually pulling the groundwater out and, re- and remediating it it's cheaper?
1: Yeah definitely there's no uh, added transport costs. You minimise the risk of so if you have to transport it by road, any kind of accidents which create a spill and then potentially create another hotspot for PFAS contamination.
0: So the less you handle this contaminant is the best, what I've heard, because they're highly mobile, correct?
1: Yeah, they are highly mobile, um, but once they bind it to something, this stuff is directly analogous to what's in your blood and there's the strength of the bond there is very strong. That's why you have a long half-life. What we've found with this stuff too is once it's bound, it's pretty strongly bound. It's not going to come off easily.
0: I don't think we've talked about biomagnification of these chemicals. How does that work?
1: That's getting into more the ecological side of things. One thing that PFASs do like are organic carbon. So if they get flushed into an estuary or something like that, there's lots of organic carbon in there. So they get kind of stuck to those particles.
0: What is the organic carbon in, in those waterways?
1: It's just basically leaf matter, tree matter, soils. Reeds? Yeah, anything that's been broken down.
0: Sediment, spoil?
1: Yeah, yeah, all that's got organic carbon in it. So any kind of contamination, once it's removed from the source, it normally would have to be secured. Normally with PFAS, with other airports that I've read about, like Dusseldorf Airport in Germany, when they excavate their PFAS contaminated soil, since there's really nothing to be done yet with soil, they wrap it up and store it.
0: Because you're right, there is no remediation options no. that are currently in place for soil, correct?
1: No, that's, that's correct, and that's something we're working on as well with uh, our research, um, is the application of hemp plants to take it out of the soil, and then we just harvest the hemp plants. And, and burn. hope no
0: one smokes them.
1: Well, we, there is that, but I guess that's one way of getting rid of the PFAS. Um, but
0: it's straight into someone's lungs. Yeah.
1: No, the, the benefit of this is you've just got to make sure people know that the hemp plant is not cannabis, so it's very low in the psychoactive ingredient, so it's less than 0.3%. You don't get a buzz out of hemp.
0: This sounds like a very good product that's been put here. We're, we're finding some good uses for hemp. Is it all cannabis plants that can do your...
1: Yes, they're all from the same family, so they're all from the cannabis family. So I would assume, yes, there is a probably a large untapped market out there for for the um, protein powder uh, from illegal uh, cannabis plantations. I guess
0: a spokesperson for the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries said there is a hemp licence manual available which sets out all the regulations and licence requirements, but growing hemp is subject to strict controls and it's licensed only for commercial and research purposes. Conditions include strict eligibility and suitability requirements for licence applicants and compliance monitoring programs, among which includes that access to plants must be
1: restricted. The main thing with this is that hemp itself, you still have to have a license, but it's very low in THC. So.
0: What is THC?
1: It's tetrahydrocannabinol, a psychoactive component. Yeah, well, hemp has been used quite a bit around the world for remediation of heavy metals, and it's, it's very good. It's got a fairly deep root system, a dense root system, and it takes up heavy metals like you wouldn't believe, and then they harvest it, ash the plant and recover the metals. PFAS or any contaminant gets transported in the groundwater so I like to think of it as like if you're eating a slushy. So you've got all this ice and you've got your red syrup in there, you stick a straw in, this is kind of analogous to pump and treat as well, and then you start to suck all your red liquid up. You can see it disappearing from between the ice particles so you're left with clear ice. So that's in effect what the plant will be doing, its roots go into all those little gaps between the soil, which is like the ice in the slushy, and all the contaminants are in the red cordial, say, in this analogy, and then the plant just sucks all those up. And then eventually any of the contaminants that are stuck to the soil particles will start washing off as cleaner water comes through. So the plant will eventually just take it up,
0: this is quite amazing. What what I find amazing is that it is the one that, that people aren't going to want to smoke. Yes. Which it would have been bad news if it was the other one because you probably yeah. wouldn't be able to do this. No. <laughs> so uh, that must have been
1: a relief. Yeah, because that's always been the, a bit of a running joke around here is, oh, it's, it's the Hemi, are you going to smoke at all or what? <laughs> I
0: told people today I was going to see the marijuana man. <laughs> I told my daughter. <laughs> Shouldn't do it. I think the slushie was fantastic. We'll return to the conversation with Dr Brett Turner shortly, but for now I'm off to the lab where I will have a chat with Brett's research assistant, Glenn Currell.
2: I'm a research assistant in the civil engineering, environmental and surveying department at Newcastle University. Originally I worked at the Tech College at Tyres Hill in Newcastle in a teaching environment, biosciences. I left after about 17 years. I went to private industry, which was a winery, my subject area is microbiology.
0: When you first laid eyes on the results, mm. how did that make you feel?
2: I thought, well, this is a really worthwhile research project and I was just glad that I was asked to be part of it.
0: Yeah, well, it is groundbreaking. Mm. There doesn't seem to be anyone else that's actually studied the HSA protein and, no. and hemp no, that's right. for PFAS.
2: No, that's exactly right. And it could have uh, implications for other waste problems as well. Other
0: contaminants so, that we yeah, haven't known how to get rid know. of.
2: Yeah, exactly. I used to work in a winery and we used an RDV which is a rotary drum vacuum filtration device and it uses a a coating of diatomaceous earth. I can actually turn that on, you might be able to get the sound of it rotating there. Then once we have a designated thickness of diatomaceous earth we can then introduce the, the stuff that we want to filter and in our case it's our hemp powder that's in solution. By applying a vacuum to this drum we suck through the water that the temp has been suspended in which is the clarified and purified water that out of our mix it basically dewaters it it dries it and it forms what we call a cake and that cake will collect for thermal destruction the more water that you remove the faster the thermal destruction will happen the clear filtrate that comes out of the rdv can then just be put straight back into where it would normally go which is in the drains RDVs is utilised right throughout a lot of industries.
0: So industry's very familiar with this process.
2: Yeah, it's a a very common industrial process. It's been around for at least a hundred years. Food industries, in particular wineries, um, but you have brewing, very common. But they also have mineral recovery. So in mining situations they would use a similar device to this. A lot of the waste industries would know about this style of machinery.
0: So as far as expertise in staff, there'd be many people that are trained in... Oh, there's
2: many companies that produce those devices, and they're like, they can be three metre long drums.
0: I think this is what I like about the idea that that your team's come up with, is that taking something that's natural, like the hemp plants, And he even, Brett talked to me even about putting them into the drains as well, you know, Mm. potentially. Potentially, For the, the, to remediate the soil, which I think is fantastic. Yeah,
2: that's the, that's another side benefit.
0: You live in Maitland area. Is there any PFAS issues where you live?
2: There's been a site identified in Rutherford. There's an oil processing plant there. Apparently that's, that is contaminated with a PFAS. Not sure which, which one, but there's also a site in Singleton, and I believe there's another site in Heatherbrough.
0: When you first heard about the PFAS contamination in Williamtown in 2015 when it was announced, what was your initial reaction?
2: Couldn't believe it. In this day and age, I thought there would have been more cross-checks and balances done, but it's obviously been neglected.
0: For a long time, decades. When you were asked to join this project with Brett, how did you feel when he asked you
2: to help? Well, I was humbled to think that he would like me to join his team. But I've always felt fairly strongly about the environment and I've always, you know, done my bit to not contaminate the world.
0: So I guess this project is something that you feel really proud to be part of?
2: absolutely, yeah. It's not just Australia, it's, it's a world issue. It's been around for a long time, but I don't think people have really come to the conclusion that it's a real danger.
0: Do you believe it is a danger?
2: Well, I think anything that has carbons in, in there are, are a danger.
0: When they put people on town water it's it's easy for people that are not living there to say well they've, it's fixed now, they've put them on town water so
2: mm. you know, why no, should people care the, about
0: the groundwater?
2: It's the greater environment, that's the problem.
0: So to do so, nothing is going to be not an option mm, right?
2: I don't think so no something has to be done and hopefully it's done sooner rather than later. The longer it goes on the harder it will be to clean up.
0: What you guys are working on is to remediate groundwater, not surface well, water. Well,
2: at the moment, groundwater.
0: I didn't talk to Brett about how much it might cost to remediate this way, but he definitely said it would be less than granulated, carbon. activated carbon.
2: That's right, yeah, it will be less.
0: The hemp seeds are looking like a, a more economical option so far.
2: Yeah, and efficient. And Very efficient. efficient? Yeah.
0: And the fact that they're natural means we're not putting yeah. another man-made chemical into the environment.
2: Yeah, that's right. Yep, I think that's a good good way of describing it.
0: In August 2018, the Australian Research Council announced the successful recipients of the 8.2 million dollars set aside for PFAS research. Unfortunately, Dr. Brett Turner's application for funding was not successful. Just before this episode was published, I gave Dr. Brett Turner a quick call to talk about the ARC grant and also to ask him what's next for his research. Hi, Brett, how are you?
3: Good, thanks, Kayleen.
0: Just wanted to ask you a couple of quick questions about the Australian Research Council grant that you applied for to take your research to the next level. uh, How much did you actually ask for?
3: ended up asking it was $2.4 over three years for the PFA Special Initiative grants
0: their grants were announced in August and uh, unfortunately your project wasn't successful at this point. How did you feel about that?
3: Uh, pretty disappointed actually, uh, to say the least. Uh, we thought we had a, a really, really good solid proposal. We had excellent uh, industry backing. We had, I think it was like $160,000 per year funding from industry to put towards that. Yeah, and we had a, a solid foundation and some really good preliminary results that we uh, um, could show the ARC. And we had three good reviews from the independent reviewers. And, um, yeah, and then nothing.
0: So your proposal would have ticked all the boxes that were necessary to get a tick of approval?
3: Yeah, we covered the groundwater, uh, even soil, which they're going to target in the next round, and also thermal destruction. I think we covered a, a lot more than what was required.
0: I don't know if there's many people out there in Australia dealing with all three in their methods.
3: Definitely not. There's kind of people working either on soil remediation or groundwater and maybe coupled with the thermal destruction. But, yeah, it's not the the whole three. the The soil is probably one of the most difficult ones to deal with. So not many people are doing it.
0: You didn't get the grant. What's next for your team?
3: We're waiting on... Another announcement for some more PFAS research put in for, and that was some discovery grants. So we know that from the initial research that the hemp plant proteins are the active ingredient in removing the, the PFAS chemicals. So what we're going to try and narrow down in the new grant is what in particular is the active ingredient. So is it the overall protein or is it a part of the protein? And then when, once we do that, we can then look at, well, can we either extract that out of the plant and then concentrate it. So instead of having maybe a kilo of the plant material to do the reaction that we need, then maybe we could get rid of all the superfluous material in that and just concentrate down the active ingredient. So you only need a much tinier amount. And we're looking at putting those on potentially on very small particles with high surface area So it it will really increase the amount of removal ability of of the system.
0: It sounds like it would be maybe a more efficient version.
3: Yeah, that's what the hope is. Uh, So depending on overall costings, I guess, but the overall um, idea at this stage is just to have a look at what the active ingredient is, trying to isolate it and work out, well, can we answer the question, is it possible to make it more efficient?
0: Okay, so that was called a discovery grant, is that correct? Yes. How much are you asking for for that?
3: About the same, around the $2.4 million.
0: And that will get you and your team working on this for how long?
3: That, that'll be three years.
0: And what happens if you don't get it?
3: Good question. Um, my current funding runs out in February, so it's a bit up in the air at the moment. Uh, we're still waiting on that announcement. and Yeah, so I don't know what's in store for the future.
0: But let's hope that you do get it. When are they going to make that announcement, any idea?
3: Um, no, the ARC, it just indicates the fourth quarter of this year. So it could, normally it's released by now, but for some reason it's taking longer.
0: I just want to ask you also, I understand that the federal member for Patterson, Meryl Swanson, and also Senator Brian Burston, came out to the university recently and met with you and your team and looked at what you've been doing there, and they were very impressed by your research. How did that visit come about? Uh,
3: Well, after we didn't get any funding via the the first PFAS initiative from the ARC, I thought we'd increase our research profile. If we get our name out there more, then we get a bit more of a reputation on what we're doing. So the, the whole idea was to get some of the local members involved. They're at the coalface here trying to help the communities that are affected at Williamtown. And just explaining what we were doing um, that it was a natural process and that it worked very well. Yeah, that was about a month ago. And since then, both uh, Meryl and Brian have been working quite hard to try and source some funding for us. Um, in particular, Meryl's been going great guns at the moment, um, trying to organise on, on both sides of politics, actually. So it's a, she's kind of working the bipartisan um, method of trying to get funding. So... She's put me in touch with the Federal Health Minister's Office as well as uh, the other shadow ministers, so it's been really good.
0: That sounds really positive. Was there any other politicians there, or was it just uh, those two on the day?
3: Those two on the day.
0: Kate Washington couldn't make it?
3: Uh, Yeah, she sent her apologies that morning, but we met up with her the following week at her office. She was quite positive as well and was going to contact and to see how the state and the feds could work together, I guess.
0: Did Senator Brian Burston um, make you any promises or what he was going to try and do to help you?
3: Yeah, well, he mentioned that he could potentially put us in contact with Senator Corman, the finance Minister, have a, have a chat to him about potential funding streams as well. I think that's still in the works at the moment, been very positive on um, all sides.
0: Yes, I know that when we spoke, and I've got their interviews coming up after your episode back-to-back, they were both very impressed with your research, and I think also because it's a natural solution to a chemical problem.
3: Yeah, I think that's probably going to be a lot of the battle because uh, people that are directly affected by this chemical, A, they don't know what's going on for the remediation process, and B, I, I kind of liken it to maybe fracking, so they don't know what's being used to take this out of solution, so whether or not it's trading one bad thing for another. Of course it's not, but there is very little in the way of information out there on what's exactly uh, happening in terms of the remediation, whereas with uh, our research, it's all a natural product. Um, Once it's out there, they know what they're getting and they know it's not putting anything harmful back into the groundwater.
0: Here's what the federal member for Patterson, Meryl Swanson, had to say about Dr Brett Turner's research.
3: Yeah, I do know about
4: his work. Um, he and Professor Scott Sloan have done some really good work using hemp seed
0: powder. And yet he hasn't got his next stage of funding. What do you think about that,
4: yeah, so I'm actually due to have um, a conversation with Brett uh, in the next couple of weeks. I think I've seen that in the diary. So I'm actually looking forward to finding out a little bit more about why he was advised he wasn't successful and, and just taking that further because, I, you know, I'm as curious as anyone as to why they weren't successful and I want to talk to them a little bit more about that. I don't know how those grants are judged in terms of their merit.
0: I also caught up with Senator Brian Burston from the United Australia Party to discuss Brett's research.
5: It was a very good presentation. I was astounded when I saw a diagram of uh, the hemp plant at the bottom of his um, mm. opening page. It's uh, extraordinary how they've thought outside the square. But more concerning is that uh, they put in a, um, a bid for a, a round of uh, funding to the Australian Research Council and did not get a dime.
0: What did you think of the results?
5: Oh, extraordinary, the almost 100% decontamination of the, the samples. and
0: It's a natural Solution. It's not another chemical for a chemical.
5: But very disappointing that the um, council did not give them funding. I've made an assurance t- to them that I will approach Matisse Cormann and seek to get a um, meeting with Friedenberg, the, um, the treasurer, and see if we can get some money for these guys. Um, I think Matisse Cormann will be very receptive to that. I going on very well with Senator Cormann and he's very very keen to help um, wherever he can in this in this. Um, particular issue came to mind now that $33 million in the budget was allocated for uh, research. I'll be seeking to see um, how much of that uh, has been spent and then perhaps having some of that allocated to the Newcastle University Research Group. This funding uh, also um, helps fund the salaries of those who are doing this research, so it's very critical to retain them.
0: Amazing team working on this. It'll be a shame to see it stop.
5: I'm I'm confident I can uh, persuade the government to have this particular project funded for a few years, uh, and I'm confident that I can achieve that.
0: I plan to bring you an update in a future episode about whether Dr Brett Turner received his funding or not for this valuable research project. But it would be great if you could share this episode widely. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please download and share so more people can hear this. Next episode of Talking PFAS. The federal member for Paterson, Meryl Swanson. Why did Labor vote against Brian Burston's motion in the Senate for? compensation.
4: There's a couple of things I want to say about that. Uh, Brian didn't approach me or us at all to try and work with the wording of that motion for something that we would have been able to support which I think is really unfortunate. So that motion wasn't supported on a number of fronts. The Greens did something similar uh, you know earlier in the year Um, but um, you know look we absolutely need to to land in a place but that wasn't the way to get there.
0: Thank you once again for listening to Talking PFAS and feel free to leave a review on iTunes. Thanks very much. See you next time. All the information and audio in today's episode is copyright. Please contact me for permissions. Thank you.